0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Servants and Heralds podcast. This is Jeff Wright, and what you're about to hear is my conversation with Dr. Jared Moore on a Twitter Spaces meeting discussing the queering of evangelicalism and how to push back. Spaces audio is a little wonky. We've cleaned it up and think you'll find it listenable, but forgive us if we miss something along the way. Here we go. my clock says seven o'clock p.m and so we're going to go ahead and get started for those of you seeing the servants and heralds logo being the speaker my name is jeff wright we're uh hosting the first ever servants and heralds twitter space and so uh, i'm using that account to run this and my guest and my um, partner in a lot of different endeavors uh, including both of us writing for servants and heralds and being part of their podcasting network is Dr. Jared Moore. If you don't know Jared, one thing that's really relevant to this space is that uh, Jared did his PhD at Southern Seminary on the reformed understanding of concupiscence. What does it mean to um, be morally guilty for sin? And specifically with his PhD, um, he talked a lot about revoice, which is kind of the leading movement, clearing evangelicalism right now and so uh, i'm looking forward to hearing jared kind of bring his expertise to the to the table tonight um jared how you doing tonight man
1: i'm doing well man it's good to good to be here and i'm I'm looking forward to the discussion
0: okay well i kind of pushed jared on the title for this get together uh the queering of evangelicalism and i'm using that language uh, i think in a way that's consistent with um i hate to use the word the term gay community i don't think you can build community on aberrant uh, and rebellious perversion but participants in that lifestyle uh, use the term queering to talk about making spaces uh, safe for queer uh, individuals and things like that um i'm going to use i'm going to describe queering as opening the door for perversion and normalizing perversion. And I don't think there's a good faith observer of evangelicalism who can say that we haven't seen numerous concerted efforts to queer evangelicalism in uh, recent days. And so um, we're going to talk about how we got there, and then we're going to talk about how we can uh, get out of there. And so with that in mind, Jared... I mean, how did we get here, man? How did how do we start seeing the querying of evangelicalism?
1: Well, there's many there's many people that we could look at. And I think some names will will surprise people. I mean, it surprised me whenever I was researching this further. Um, but the main the main way that we got here is that we've had a poor um, homardiology, which is the study of sin. Um, Basically, we've emphasized the gospel so much that we haven't spent much time talking about what sin is. And sin is defined um, by not fulfilling the law or being obedient to God. So anything in us that is not obedient to God or that does not love God and love our neighbor is sin. We got bogged down in discussing, well, well, did I choose this or do I remember choosing it? Or, you know, we we're we're basically talking about anthropology and that's kind of how sin has been discussed for a better of 20 years. Um, How do I feel about this? What did I do? I remember doing instead of, you know, the two greatest commandments, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if anything in us isn't doing that, then it's sin. And um, that's where we need to start from. Um, So Wesley Hill is one such character um, that we need to look at. Now, Wesley's an Episcopal priest, teaches at Western Seminary. And the denomination that he's in is actually fully gay affirming. And so... um, you know, back in 2014, before he was, um, before he was a uh, Episcopalian priest, um, he taught at Trinity College of Ministry in Pennsylvania. And uh, he spoke at ETS, and he presented a paper called um, Is Being Gay Sanctifiable? Scripture and the Great Tradition on Same-Sex Love and Christian Friendship. And this is a, a direct quote from it. He says, it seems to be important to make some kind of distinction between an inclination to have sex with persons of the same sex and a broader sensitivity or sensibility that is part of what modern psychology refers to when it uses the language of homosexual orientation. Furthermore, it seems important to me to, to stress that much of what falls under that latter rubic, rubric, so not the homosexual inc- inclination, but the homosexual orientation, may be not actively sinful, but rather the fruit of a Christian ascetic Effort to reorder one's homosexual inclinations," end quote. So, to kind of put that in in layman's terms, he's separating same sex sexual attraction from homosexual orientation or same sex attraction. So, same sex sexual attraction would be sin, but same sex attraction could be made holy or sublimated or reordered um, to glorify God. Hey, let me jump in there real quick, Jared, because I'm not
0: sure what everybody's expertise is on this. Can you give us a quick definition of sublimated?
1: Yeah, sublimated just means to turn something to holiness. So you're taking something that is sinful and you're making it holy, which, which uh, you know, that's something only Roman Catholicism, modern day Roman Catholicism teaches. Like it's not, it's not, it's not part of the Roman Catholic tradition. It's not part of the Protestant tradition. It's very new.
0: Well, and so listeners, what, what also may be of interest to you or or maybe be some helpful context is that when Jared was doing his PhD, he was contrasting a reformed understanding of concupiscence with the Roman Catholic. And Jared, it's safe to say your conclusion was that revoices understanding of, Sin is much more consistent with a Roman Catholic understanding rather than a Reformed Protestant. Is that right?
1: Yes, but, but even back in the 1500s at the Council of Trent, Rome condemned concupiscence. I mean, it, it had guilt with it. Um, it. I mean, sinful desire was actually sin, and it required baptism to remove the guilt. Okay, so
0: here again, I'm going to jump in. Just maybe, if only for me, but for some of our listeners who maybe aren't well versed on this topic, one of the ways you specifically changed my thinking is that I initially came to this. I think I was listening to Wesley Hill in the Spiritual Friendship days. Um, was he, was he at Calvin?
1: He gave a lecture at Calvin.
0: I guess that's where I first heard of him, and that was you know much earlier in the 2000s. And I've sort of had this. Um, I don't know, sympathy for someone saying, look, I have a desire within me that I can't, you know, I can't consciously account for it arising from a wicked choice I made. And since it didn't, you know, show up within me in, um, you know, in consequence of some rebellious act of my will, I, I think this must not be inherently sinful and therefore I can sublimate it and turn it towards Good ends, and again, I was I was sympathetic to that on on hearing it the first time, but conversations with you helped me to see the error there. So, could you walk our listeners through like what what is wrong with that kind of argument? How does it how does it how does concupiscence factor in, and what should be our understanding of homosexual appetites or desires within us in light of you know scripture and then uh, also church history where it's been helpful.
1: Well, all appetites that are contrary to God come from original sin, and so they're produced by the flesh. The Apostle Paul says very clearly in Romans 7 that there's nothing good in the flesh. And yet Revoice wants you to believe, Wesley Hill wants you to believe, that good can come from the flesh. His sexual orientation came from the fall, and it produces desires in him, And evidently, the Holy Spirit has given him enough power to turn, not turn from, but to turn his same-sex attraction to holiness. But evidently, the Holy Spirit hasn't given him enough power to turn from his same-sex attraction. And that's one of the greatest inconsistencies in what they're arguing. Um, They argue that you only have to resist these desires. You don't have to turn from them. You don't have to reject them. You don't have to deny them. I mean, they're running around calling themselves gay Christians and um, it's just super inconsistent. But returning to concupiscence, if it came from the fall and it comes from the flesh, then it's sin. I mean, Paul talks about this. He talks about walking in the spirit so that you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Is homosexuality a desire of the flesh or a desire of the spirit? Uh, The Bible is very clear. It's a desire of the flesh. Well, Revoice and Wesley Hill would have you to believe that it's both. That it's not just a desire of the flesh, but that his homosexual orientation can be reordered in such a way by the Holy Spirit, which it just what's confusing about it is he, he they're literally arguing that the Holy Spirit takes something evil and makes it good, which that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when a sinner is saved. He or she is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives him or her a new spirit, resurrects him or her, and then produces desires, new desires, desires that do not come from the flesh but come from the spirit. And so Wesley's arguing that these desires come from the flesh but are transformed into the spirit's desires, And that is just not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not what Romans 7, Paul teaches in Romans 7 or in Galatians. Does that answer your question?
0: It does. I'm I'm just kind of remembering. I think it was really, you know, it's one of those times when as a dumb guy, I'm glad I have smart friends. I think you said something kind of pithy. You said, hey, man, to desire something that would be wicked to do is also wicked. (laughs) And, you know, it's one of those, well, when you put it like that, Jared, Uh, light bulb moments for me. Um, So one other issue there that I think maybe would be helpful is the thought that there are certain good inclinations that can be expressed sinfully. And then there are certain inclinations that are inherently corrupt in a, in a distinct way. So I'm thinking of, um, you know, there there are certain things that we are commanded to do, right? Men generally are uh, called to pursue a wife and, Uh, have a family and that gets wickedly perverted into maybe uh, you know, porn usage and passive uh, approaches to life where you're, you're stacking up video game wins, but you're not actually doing anything in the real world. Um, Am I right in saying you would see that as different from someone who is pursuing uh, and indulging an appetite for homosexual encounters?
1: They are different in the sense that one is a quote unquote natural desire in that God has designed our bodies in such a way that we are meant to pursue a spouse for marriage. Um, but they are the same in that they're both produced by the flesh, like a desire for porn is purely flesh.
0: Gotcha. OK, right. well, thank you. That's all helpful kind of theological context. And so we've been talking about Wesley Hill. We've tried to define some terms and get clarity on you know, a, a theological understanding of sin and, and desires and whatnot. Is this now times to shift into talking about Revoice as a, uh, I know it's a conference, maybe we'll call it an institution, or is there more background you want to talk about?
1: Um, I'd like to, uh, yeah, we can we can go ahead and talk about one of the co-founders of Revoice, Nate Collins. Okay. Um, He was a former Southern Baptist. He has a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. and um. You know, Revoice's goal was to support, and this is a quote from them, support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in the church might be empowered to live in gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality, end quote. And so their error, um, at least Collins' error, one of his errors, Um. He says that usually, this is from his, his book, um, All But Invisible, he says that usually we think that the most meaningful and rewarding way to experience our sexuality is physically with a spouse. The question under consideration is here is whether that is the only way to express the urges that people feel when they experience sexual desire. To answer this question, however, we need to examine the fascinating but complex notion of sublimation. So he argues, he goes on to argue in this book, that you can turn, that people who are same-sex attracted or who have those desires, they can turn that away, you know, reject the sexual aspect, but the desire for same-sex intimacy can be pursued through friendship. Now, the reason why this is dangerous and the reason why it's contrary to the Bible is because if, if the pursuit of friendship is entailed in our sexuality then in the Garden of Eden God created that in Adam and Eve for one another it was not something to be used on used for friendship Adam wasn't supposed to have that type of friendship with his daughters you know he wasn't supposed to the you know the the intimacy he's supposed to be seeking with his wife the non-sexual intimacy He's not supposed to be going to his daughters and trying to get that, or going to other women in the community, or. Um, but that—that's essentially what Nate Collins is arguing. He's saying, no, 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 this, you know, this is entailed in sexuality, but it is for friendship, and you can't get that from the Bible. What What these men need to be doing is they need to be pursuing opposite sex friendships, and who knows, they may fall in love with her friend. Yeah. Yeah. So that's,
0: an, that's another interesting thing that as I've kind of learned on this, I think it was Ben Shapiro. I, I didn't listen to him a ton, but I, I think maybe it was around the time he had MacArthur on the podcast. I was listening to some other episodes and he made the point, obviously not coming from a Christian tradition uh, that, you know, you, you should just pursue what uh, you're designed for. And he, he made the point that, there have to have been lots of men who experienced same-sex attraction in history who ended up being wonderful dads because they pursued sanctification. And part of pursuing sanctification was, uh, you know, being obedient to God's natural order. You know, they had a desire for sexual um, relationships and they knew what the appropriate avenue was. And so they aimed those energies at uh, what God had blessed. And I thought that was a really profound insight. And I mean, I don't know. I, I, you may want to push back on that even. I'm not entirely sure that we ever talked about that. But I remember thinking that, yeah, man, like if you're if you're a glutton, the thing to do is to have a proper relationship to food and uh, subordinate that desire to God's revelation. Right. Order your loves, as the medievals would say, and uh, bring your love for food into submission to the Lordship of Christ. And I thought, yeah, that, that clearly ports over to other uh, appetites, but I just hadn't thought about it in that sense.
1: Yeah, amen, man. I mean, I, I mean, natural law, both natural law and scripture says find a wife. I mean, what Revoice is full of are, are people that desire marriage. The issue is that they desire same sex marriage. And so to pacify their sinful desires, so not to repent from them, but to f- pacify their desires, they're tempting. I mean, you know, um, one of the board members on Revoice is um, Preston Sprinkle and his ministry, his Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, mm-hmm. they argue for like celibate partnerships where two gay people get together and they call it a household, they call it a covenant friendship, platonic um i mean it's just a very it's basically marriage without the sex
0: like, well and it's it's often also with the sex i mean again with the with wesley hill being sort of my entry point i was talking to you and a mutual friend of ours through this i started seeing those spiritually uh excuse me spiritual friendship guys talking about cuddling um you know i got you know one of them saying I've been involved in this platonic relationship, this exclusive platonic relationship with this guy. He has started dating a woman. I'm profoundly jealous. And then eventually, you know, you heard like, oh no, we actually made out one night or something like that. And and I, you know, the person's trying to be transparent about their struggles, but you're like, yeah, yeah, you're not sublimating anything, dude. You're living in a monog uh, yeah monogamous, exclusive relationship. You have deep emotional bonds, and you're expressing yourself sexually. What in the world are you aiming at holiness at this point? You've just got this label on it called spiritual friendship, and it's just a gay lifestyle, right? And it, anyway, it just it was immediately uh, it lent immediate credibility to the criticisms you were giving me there as I was thinking through the issue.
1: It is, and it, it's unfortunate because, well, Revoice has progressed, right? I mean, and I hate that term "progress" because it's not progress. Um, their ministry is going where it logically led. Leads, you know, when you when you start defining um, sin based on anthropology, based on how many how a group of people feel about their sin, rather than what the Bible actually says, then you end up. I mean, let, let's start polling people how they feel about um, their gender. And, and then you start making compromises based on, you know, how far can we go without um, violating Scripture? Whenever the goal should be to love God with all our hearts, souls and minds and love our neighbors as ourselves. And there's no way that people can say that they are loving God through their same-sex attraction. Now, the only way to love God through your same-sex attraction, well, it's impossible. You have to reject it. You have to turn completely from it. You have to starve it. You cannot feed it. You cannot tempt yourself by saying that it's okay, by calling yourself a gay Christian, by, hey, let's go to a conference where everybody else has these same desires and let's let's hang out together and, hey, why well, don't a few of us form a household? Um. You know, it, it would be much better if, the, if one of these people who battle these sins, um, you know, talk with somebody, somebody in your church, perhaps a married couple, an older married couple, and see if you could live with them or, um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, there's just there's other biblical, more biblical ways to think through these things instead of putting yourself in the midst of temptation. I mean, Wesley Hill he has a personal testimony from several years ago where he had a best friend that he fell in love with. Yeah. I remember that. And, um, you know, he, the, uh, the fellow got married and it broke his heart and he cried and wept and, um, you know, and for anybody else that would be scandalous. Um, but it didn't affect him at all. Yeah. The, um, I mean, there is
0: like a, there's a, you feel a, a sadness for this group because they clearly have longings that they want to see fulfilled. Um, but the, it, it, it just becomes kind of a disaster when you realize what this is going to do to people. And I think uh, this isn't new information, but the principle of substitution here is really helpful to get clarity on this. The way revoice wants you to think about same sex attraction would obviously be unworkable with any other pathological sin pattern, right? So if uh, if someone popped up, and maybe someone out there has, but, it, you know, in theory, if someone popped up and was offering a conference for racist Christians, encouraging people to find, you know, within their racist desires, part of their identity in Christ and a way to sublimate that to holiness, everybody, you know, every thinking Christian would immediately be appalled. And if they were saying, well, you know, we'd like to go to um, we'd like to go to conferences and talk about, you know, racial superiority. And we're going to get together and talk about people who share those um, those conclusions and those suspicions within themselves. We would all be saying this is a nightmare. This isn't repentance at all. This is cultivating sin. Please stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to treat you as unbelievers. Uh, but with same sex attraction, we're supposed to have this special category for it. And. Once you start kind of subjecting some of the rhetoric to just a little bit of scrutiny, man, it falls apart entirely.
1: It does. It falls apart quickly because same-sex attraction is a special sin. The LGBTQ—I mean, you know—all those inclinations—they um, are being treated as as sexual minorities, as a special class of Christian. And As if it's,
0: yeah, they, they, they appeal to you to give them um, sort of uh, suffering credit for uh, how they, you know, they won't ever get to act on their desires. And you're like, well, yeah, man, I mean, that's kind of the whole point of sanctification in the fallen world. We don't get to act on our wicked desires, but for somehow, for some reason, this is supposed to be noble on your end. I don't I don't
1: get that. Right, right. Um. So there's Nate Collins arguing for sublimation, and um, you know he goes on in his book uh, to even claim and to even permit that there may be homosexuality in heaven, um, because it's, you know, homosexual orientation is not inherently sinful.
0: Well, I mean Grant Hartley, I I think Grant Hartley really did a lot of uh help he, he gave a lot of help to the good guys on this one with that breakout session at revoice 18 where he said let's imagine what queer treasures will we brought into the new jerusalem and that kind of rhetoric you know if you if you've been kind of tracking with revoice you've been operating through an empathetic lens and been led along i think that right there is a pretty significant speed bump right mm-hmm. it makes you reevaluate but, but anyway the whole point is he clearly thinks that products of pursuing uh, a homosexual lifestyle are somehow going to be brought into the eternal state. I mean, it's not just scandalous. It's kind of horrifying. You know, mm-hmm. again, what what products of racism are going to come into the new Jerusalem? What products of spouse abuse culture are going to be brought into the new kingdom? I mean,
1: it, it's just, it's monstrous. i Amen. i in. I'm in. Um, another another guy to consider, who's very popular in evangelicalism, is Matthew Lee Anderson, yep. who's on the board of Revoice. Uh, Anderson has a PhD from Oxford University in Christian ethics, and in an article he wrote called "Sex, Temptation, and the Gay Christian: What Chastity Demands," this is what he said. Begin quote: He said, "The gay Christian who sees in the members of their own sex occasions for joyful delight." is unequivocally called, on my understanding, to utter a firm and unhesitating no to acts which are ordered toward beginning or completing arousal or any use of reproductive parts and to utter the same no to the desires for these acts. But the culpability for undertaking those acts or simply having those desires is very different. But I think gay Christians are permitted to utter a yes To the goodness they have discovered, the gladness they feel and the peculiarities of members of their same sex that they have not yet discovered within the other sex, they are are free, indeed, possibly obliged to say yes to that about their same sex to which God has said yes, and to even allow this affirmation a more basic and fundamental place within their self-understanding than the renunciations they are called to. Such an approach is not angelic precisely because it recognizes that same-sex sexual desires are corruptions that include other morally permissible descriptions of the other person, and that removing the presence of such corrupting elements frees the gay Christian to affirm those descriptions gladly and joyfully, provided they do so within and beneath the fear and reverence for the unsparing holiness of God Almighty." End quote. Now, this should give us a big red flag because what he's saying is that when homosexuals are committing the sex act, there are, you know, we need to reject that. But entailed in that sex act are things that are praiseworthy. I mean, that that's what he's saying. He's saying same sex beauty. And again, same sex beauty is not like, um, you know, me looking at a man and saying, you know, that, that's a good looking fella or me looking at my sons and saying, you know, those are good looking men. Um, you know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying in a peculiarly gay way, again, a result of the fall, desiring same sex intimacy that is non-sexual is God glorifying that it same sex beauty. Now, this indicts God when you start saying that it is God's design that is pulling homosexuals to the same sex. That's a problem. I mean, you're, you're now indicting God for his design. And you know as well as I do that when Eve was looking at the tree, it was not God's design that caused her to see the tree as able to make her wise. Or is good for food. She didn't see the tree in that way until the devil changed her mind.
0: Hey, hey, so we need to spend just a moment on that because I'm betting there's people listening here like that is not self evident in the reading of the text. I think, I mean, I'll just from we've had this conversation fairly recently, so I, I can remember going through this. I remember thinking, like, well, I I got the sense that she was just sort of seeing this as a well-crafted fruit, and yeah, God's right; it'll make her wise. Can you kind of walk through your understanding of the temptation of Eve and the fall of man? Because I think um, I think that may provoke some some good questions among our listeners.
1: Sure. Um, So in Genesis three, she goes; Eve goes from. This is what she says about the tree. She says, "God said." Uh, I'm sorry, she says to the serpent, well, I'm just gonna start at the beginning. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she doesn't think that she can even touch it. Um, You know, so she's, not viewing the tree the way that he, the way that the serpent says. He, he tells her, you shall not surely die, because God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's when, once he says that, then she starts seeing the tree as the serpent sees it. And part of the way that we know this is that two of the, the same roots of the Hebrew words here um, in verse 6 and um, and I believe it's um, I believe it's delight and desire to make one wise, a delight to the eyes and desire to make one wise. Um, the Hebrew roots for that are also present in Deuteronomy 521, uh, the tenth commandment, "You shall not covet, you shall not desire. Yeah. And so here, Eve looking at the tree, is two of the Hebrew roots are used in the 10th commandment by Moses. He wrote both, you know, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. So he wrote both these. And it's before they enter the promised land that he's essentially saying, you know, don't, (laughs) don't be like Eve uh, in the garden of Eden. And, uh, but she is seeing the tree through the devil's eyes here. Um, What I argue in my dissertation is that, um, well, I mean, she sins in her heart before she actually eats with her mouth, and that's, that's in the crazy. reform. That's in the reformers as well. I mean, if you go read them, and so you would also
0: think uh, conclude that James is commenting on Eve's temptation when he kind of talks about how sin gives birth to to death.
1: Possibly, possibly. Um, I mean, I looked in the Septuagint and. Um, tried to find direct correlation. Um, I couldn't find it as far as directly, but it's very close, isn't it? It's very similar. The similarities are are obvious there, um, and that's something else with James one. That's often a proof text to say, well, you know, sin doesn't take place until um, you know desire conceives, and um, that's not what James is arguing at all. Um, he starts with that this is something God cannot do. I mean, that's his, his first point. God can't do this. No, you tempt yourself. We would say, like, Jeff, if I tempted you to sin, you would say that I'm sinning by tempting you. But for some reason, we think that us tempting ourselves is not sin. That, that's not what that's not what the Bible says, though. Um, in James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so people like Robert Gagnon argue that you know only when desire conceives does it give birth to sin. Tempting oneself is not sin. But that is not the point of uh, of James. He's saying that God cannot do this, so he's making a moral statement at the very beginning, and then he's doing this. Um, it's a genealogy uh, where you've got um, you've got a grandmother, mother, and child um, that are being produced here. You know, it's lured and enticed. It produces hmm. sin, gives birth, and then when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And I, I haven't found anybody argue that, you know, they want to argue that it's only sin if desire gives birth, but but nobody's arguing that only when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. But that's what you would have
0: to argue. Right, which, if, I mean, pretty quickly runs up against Jesus
1: in, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and other places. Oh, yeah. Everybody believes that sin leads to death regardless if it's full grown or not. You know, he, this is a metaphor. And how do we know this? The very next few verses, he says, do not be deceived, my brother. So verse 16 and then verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So he's saying this temptation, don't be deceived. It does not come from God. Only good gifts come from God. He is getting on to them, his recipients, for not taking responsibility for their sin from the beginning to the end, from the root to the fruit. And I mean, you you see this when you flip over to James 4 and he says, basically you're murdering each other because you're not repenting of your desires, your passions.
0: That's good. That's helpful. And uh, listeners, I hope, Kind of me asking theological clarification questions is helpful. I know we're talking about the roots of queer acceptance and evangelicalism, but I want to make sure we're kind of on the same page of, of in terms of why that's a problem. So we, I took us off trail with Matthew Lee Anderson. Um, I've got a comment on his uh, work as well, but was there more you wanted to say before that?
1: I just, I just want to briefly say that he. He is arguing that it is holy and good for a man to look at a man the way that Adam looked at Eve, just non-sexually. So whatever non-sexual desires Adam had for Eve, Matthew Lee Anderson is saying that it is holy for a man to look at a man in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I-
0: the, the the piece I would chip in here briefly as a layman is that I think MLA is a low-key contributor uh, of significance to this. I tended to think of Nate Collins and Greg Johnson and um, Wesley Hill, Preston Sprinkle. But MLA, because he has been so uh, helpfully ardent on in vitro fertilization, I think it gives him a major pass on the stuff he has done to feed this and you know when you start pulling up the roots of where the ongoing sexual revolution has led to this queer moment um you know it's hard to know where i think a couple years ago i went back when um pope benedict was confirmed and i started reading some of the stuff that he wrote as a theologian and he makes a You know, I I guess I kind of grew up thinking Catholics against birth control was kind of goofy. But he makes this incredible point that I'm persuaded of now that basically birth control separated uh, sexuality from fecundity. And what we're dealing with now is the logical outworking. Um, So you can go back to to that and say maybe that's uh, the event horizon. Um, No fault divorce. Clearly another step along those lines. But one of the things that MLA has done specifically is feed the idea that sort of a fashionable, urban, childless lifestyle is an acceptable option for Christians. And that's what I think has trafficked under the radar that has really set us up for uh, embracing Revoice Theology and also leaving us entirely unsurprised when he's on the board pushing their theology. You know, one one of the. I guess what I'm trying to say is one of the uh, more subtle roots of this is the idea that children are a lifestyle option. And, of course, we're not going to make an idol of the natural family. And so while he's also riding on, uh, you know, helpfully on being sure to care for uh, those who are considering in vitro fertilization, thinking about the consequences of embryos frozen for decades to be thawed and whatnot, we're giving them a total pass on this really aberrant view of what it means to be vocationally living as a Christian adult, totally divorced from any view to reproduction, unless it's just sort of your thing, man. It can be your thing, but certainly the church can't make a big deal out of it. And they're not going to say, you know, it's not preferential to uh, pursue that because you're going to trample on some people who have the gift of, um, singleness. And so my, I would submit to our listeners that that's kind of a low key route of how we got to this moment. Happy to hear pushback on it. But I think that was going on in a way that uh,
1: was super unhelpful. Yeah. Amen, man. I mean, I I think that, um, I think that marriage is something that needs to be celebrated and encouraged. And um, we need to assume that that is the default position according to God's design and that people need to be pursuing marriage and rejoicing at that. And if it's legitimately
0: got to be re-normalized.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Anyway, so, uh, you you know, we've hit on Collins, we've hit on uh, Preston Sprinkle, MLA, obviously Wesley Hill got any comments on Greg Johnson or is he just kind of the face of the thing and you see ideological roots in these guys we've already talked about.
1: Yeah, I, I think he's more kind of a recipient of these guys. Um, Greg, Greg in, in my opinion, is not the theologian these other guys are. And um, he's more of a pastor kind of parroting what, what these guys have taught. Um, I, I want to come in, listener, if you want to hear Greg Johnson's understanding of same-sex attraction, uh, go look up the interview with Cross Politic where they, they kind of catch him off guard. So you get what he really believes about same-sex attraction in that interview. And um, it, it's shocking. It's shocking. And so I want to encourage you to go listen to it. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good discussion, but um, but uh, you know he, he's in line with Wesley Hill and these guys, but I think he's a poor theologian on it and more more emoting, more emotion. Um, um,
0: um one of our listeners, Bindle Weary, who uh if you're not following him on Twitter, you you ought to. He has commended Stephen Warhurst's uh speech at the PCA General Assembly on revoice. Uh I take I take uh Ben's counsel seriously and he said that uh Warhurst gave a clear pastoral and godly response to the sin involved. Uh, there's a link to it uh posted as a reply to the thread about this spaces. And so um if anybody's interested in looking at that specifically aimed at Greg Johnson, that's a good place uh, to go. Hey, you one one thing real quick. You mentioned Greg Johnson on Cross Politics, wasn't that Nate Collins?
1: No, it was Greg Johnson. Was it? Okay, I got that confused
0: then. All right, then. So uh, origins of this queer moment in evangelicalism generally covered. We want to move on to. I mean, we've been doing this for forty minutes. We want to do to, you know, get to how do we get out of this.
1: Let me, uh, let me mention uh, a few others here. Um, okay. Kevin D. Young. Um, Kevin D. Young back in 2000. Wow, oh you're going to go after K.D. Watt? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's to be blamed. Um, Kevin D. Young back in 2015 um, on the Gospel Coalition website. You can go read this. So I, wanna, I want to go after the Gospel Coalition and the Desiring God, both of those ministries, because I don't think we would have gotten here without them. Um, Okay, this is where it gets spicy. And so Kevin D. Young, you you can search this on Google, is homosexual orientation sinful? It's at the Gospel Coalition website. I want you to listen to how he dances around this question from 2015. He says, first off, he starts off with, the Bible is somewhat ambiguous about orientation as such, only because that language is relatively new language. So you're not going to find a specific verse that talks about orientation. What the Bible does say clearly is that to perform same-sex acts to engage in homosexual practice or behavior is sin. What the Bible does say clearly is that to perform same-sex acts to engage in homosexual practice or behavior is sin. Now, Leviticus says that a man should not lie with a man as with a woman. In Romans, Paul talks about exchanging natural relationships, men with women, for unnatural ones, with persons of the same gender. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 list a... you know, vice lists of sins. One of the sins mentioned is men who practice homosexuality. So the emphasis clearly is on the consciously chosen activity of homosexual intimacy. Well, what does that say about orientation? Well, it would certainly suggest that the sexual desire for somebody of the same gender is sin if it arises to the level of lust. You know, only if it arises to the level of lust, so first off, that's a Roman Catholic view of sin right there. If it, if it arises to the level of lust, the Protestant tradition, the Reformed tradition, the Westminster Confession, there is no distinction between lust and a sexual desire for someone other than your spouse. The, you know The moment you have a desire, if it would become lust, it's already lust. Right. It, it's the root of lust. And what is the root of lust morally? Mm. It, it's lust. Right. And so this again, this is in the, you know, all the way back to Augustine. He talked about how and this is how all the reformers talk in the 1500s, 1600s. It's the lust of the flesh. Any fleshly desire is lust. It is not just the You know, it leads to lust. No, it is lust. It is lust. He goes on to say, he says, and I think we go a little farther to say that the desire itself, the kind of attraction, is disordered, meaning it's not the way that God designed things from the beginning. Now, having said that, there are many desires we have in the Christian life that are disordered, and all of us need to come daily to God in repentance for all sorts of desires. So is homosexual orientation sinful? He says, I wouldn't want somebody watching this who has a struggle with same-sex attraction to think that they are beyond the pale of God's mercy or forgiveness. At the same time, I want them to know that Scripture clearly says that to act upon those attractions and to engage in that behavior is sinful. So he says that only if you act on it is it sin. And that was back in 2015. So that's before Revoice. This is Kevin D. Young on the Gospel Coalition website saying these things. Yeah. And um, it's not just that, man. In in his book, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality?, he writes, Whenever same-sex attraction manifests itself in lustful intent, the desire is sinful, just as it would be for someone attracted to persons of the opposite sex. That much is clear. But might there be some neutral ground of approval or approbation that falls short of sinful desire? I think so. A brother may be able to discern that his sister is beautiful or a grown daughter may be able to recognize that her dad is handsome without committing any of the wrong kind of epithemia desire. In the same way, the person with same sex attraction may be able to apprehend someone of the same sex as beautiful or handsome without moral culpability. And see, it's so frustrating how he talks, right? I mean, recognizing that your mom is a beautiful lady, or your sister is a beautiful lady, is not the same thing as same same sex attraction producing and noticing that someone someone of the same sex is handsome. Like it,
0: right, it, it, or it's also not the same for a, a man, a husband, or a wife noticing their spouse and desiring them physically. Those are categorically different. I mean, this is part of this is why I wanted to go back to like we're thinking about categories of sin, some things that are corruption of a natural desire, and then some things that are more intrinsically corrupt because obviously a, a husband can look at another woman lustfully mm-hmm. uh, and that's wickedness, but it, it's also not the same for a husband to say, I desire my wife or vice versa for the wife to say the better husband to make that correspondent to same sex lust. That's, it's kind of wild to hear that. I just wonder if, you know, I like KDY and I've benefited from his work. I just, it's one of those deals where you're like, man, maybe just take a little bit longer to think on this before you start publishing. Maybe. I don't know.
1: Yeah. He, he also says in this book that, um, you know, homosexual desires are disordered and the desire, you know, leads to lustful intent, then it's sinful. And I, and it just, basically he's saying same sex attraction is not sin. I mean, it's a Roman Catholic view of sin. And now, Katie, why you know De Young may not believe this now because he was on the um, the PCA study report that released in 2021, and it's great as far as the theology. And so, I wonder if D Young affirms this now. But if he doesn't, he needs to publicly say and repent publicly for having a Roman Catholic view of sin. There's no telling how many Christians he has influenced, how many pastors. He is influenced to teach this. And um, he and there's something else I want to point out in this book, Jeff. He, he says, you know, imagine a young man coming to me as a pastor and saying through tears, I find myself attracted to men instead of women. I feel so dirty. I'm so ashamed. I feel bad, miserable and mad at myself and like a failure before God every second of the day. The young says, I'd tell him that feeling this does not make him a failure And that the desire to walk in holiness is evidence of the Spirit's work in his life. I tell him about the good news of the gospel. I tell him that I'm not the way I'm supposed to be either. I tell him that Jesus is is a sympathetic high priest, that he intercedes for us, that he knows what it's like to be tempted and tried. And then he says this I tell him that God gives us limps and thorns for our good and for our glory. I tell him that God can use our struggles to bless us and to bless others through us. Now i just, I want to kick back against that and say that God does not give us sin in our lives limps and thorns for our good and for our glory
0: yeah, again, just to the principle of substitution, what happens when the minor attracted person is in your office saying that right I, I just cannot believe pastoral counsel would would be the same if you substitute the the uh, you know the the more you know the one that's still socially kind of faux pas
1: in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, it's not just the young Uh, Douglas Wilson. Just in August of 2022, he uh, did a blog post on his website where he answers questions from listeners. And one of the questions was homosexual concupiscence. What are your beliefs on concupiscence and specifically as it pertains to homosexuality? This is what Doug Wilson says. He says, I believe that the stirrings of such desire are temptation." To be resisted but not confessed, and that indulgence and expression of such desire is to be confessed to God as sin. Under no circumstances should it be made an aspect of your identity. End quote. That's essentially the same thing that De Young said. Believe that the stirrings of such desire are temptation to be resisted but not confessed because it's not sin. So same sex attraction is not sin, according to Doug Wilson.
0: Unless acted on and expressed.
1: Yeah. And um, and another thing, in a question and answer session at Indiana University, and I believe this was 2019, um, a lady asked him, can somebody be both Christian and gay? And he said, I'm a pastor of a church that has homosexuals in it. Members in good standing who are homosexuals. So if you're asking, is that okay? Is it okay for the them to be members of the church and have that particular orientation? absolutely. But if you're going to accept what the Bible teaches, they are not permitted to express their sexuality in any kind of external way in open relationship, end quote. And so it seems that Wilson has adopted, um, well, I mean, the false, you know, the false ideas of our culture that uh, you're gay for life, um, that God can't transform you, uh, that you're gay when you're sleeping, you're gay 24-7. Um, I'm I'm more with Roser- Rosaria Butterfield on this that um, there's no such thing as homosexual orientation. It's just a pattern of desire, a pattern of desire that God can change, that God can transform. Um, and so I'm just I'm dis I disappointed in Wilson. Um, I did not expect to find those quotes when I was looking for his understanding.
0: Well, you've also ruined. The joke I was setting up for, um, <laughs> you know, by by citing Rosario helpfully, you've ruined that. I was going to say, basically, this this is all the fault of the Presbyterians, and we Baptists have <laughs> kept our hands clean. But you know, thanks a lot, pal.
1: If the uh, well, now moving on to John Piper, <laughs> <laughs> who John Piper was saying this junk early 2012, um. He says same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality, owing to God's subjection of the Creator to futility because of man's sin. In Genesis 3, we read about the catastrophic moment when the first man and woman rebelled against God. The effects of them and on the world are described in chapters 3 and 4, then illustrated in the sin-soaked and death-ridden history of the Old Testament, indeed the history of the world. Um, Let's see here. I don't want to read this whole thing, Um, but he says getting, getting to same-sex attraction. um, He says that same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are in the category of groaning for redemption, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which means they're in the same broad category with all kinds of disordered bodies and minds and emotions. If we tried to make a list of the kinds of emotional and mental and physical brokenness of the human family, the list would be unending. And all of us are broken and disordered in different ways. All of you are bent to desire things in different degrees that you should not want. We're all disordered in our emotions, our minds, and our bodies. This is a call for careful distinctions, lest you hurt people or yourself unnecessarily. All our disorders, all our brokenness is rooted in sin, original sin, and our sinful nature. It would be right to say that same-sex desires are sinful in the sense that they are disordered by sin and exist contrary to God's revealed will. But to be caused by sin and rooted in sin does not make a sinful desire equal to sinning. Sinning is what happens when rebellion against God expresses itself through our disorders. And I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> you know, so it comes from sin. It's produced by sin. It is sinful, but it is not sin. And that, that, that's mm-hmm. essentially what he said. Yeah. And uh, one of uh, the authors on Desiring God quoted Popper and used this to argue that, um, this is what he says, he says, he's, he's interpreting Popper, he says, In other words, although same-sex attraction is a disordered desire, owing to the fall, and thus rooted in sin and broken by sin, nevertheless, experiencing same-sex attraction is not in itself an act of sinning, end quote. And so that's the desiring God ministry. Quoting Piper positively to say that same-sex attraction is not sin.
0: Maybe, maybe this is how we get the nonsense about God whispering about certain sins. Again, the, the stuff you've just been kind of checking off here one after another it goes back to the earlier point of the conversation where for some reason we're so we're expected to treat this particular sin as in a special category with special rules and special accommodations and all this other stuff. And that's the same deal with that God whispering rhetoric. Um, it, it's uh, it's just bizarre, I guess, to sit here and hear the arguments you're recounting attached to the names that made them. Uh, you realize man there there was just tremendous confusion on this uh
1: it's the hard homardiolo- not to be kind
0: of disappointed yeah go
1: ahead hamartiology issue uh, the study of sin understanding of what sin is uh fundamentally we 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 just did not we lost the understanding of what sin is um as far as the protestant reformed tradition we got away from our confessions um mm-hmm. You know, and Piper got away from his confession. Doug Wilson got away from his confession. You know, it's just it's um, it's frustrating because these men should should know better. Um, Another guy is Preston Sprinkle. And Preston Sprinkle argues that same sex attraction is like blindness. And so it's not sin for the same reason that blindness is not sin. (laughs) I just it, it makes me chuckle. When I when, uh because because he says that he's against same sex marriage. And I'm like, but if it's like blindness, then why would you be against someone acting on something that's not sin? Right? That that's yeah. something else. Like people who say that same sex attraction is not sin, well then why can't you act on it? Because you'd be acting on a desire that's not sinful or not sin. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, breaks down under you know minimum scrutiny. So we've been an hour on what, how we got here, and I'm not sure how long everybody has an appetite for staying around. But we did say this would be undoing the queering of evangelicalism. We've we've talked about how evangelicalism got queered. How do we get out of this? And you're you're talking about getting away from our confessions. That seems like a natural time to talk about the Nashville Statement for a few minutes. Maybe um, talk about why you know uh, another group we're part of, Credo Alliance has issued what is called the Crossville Statement, uh, largely based on your critique of the Nashville Statement. Could you talk to
1: us about those two confessions? Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the five-year, I believe is the five-year anniversary of the Nashville Statement. Danny Aiken, um, who's like a grandfather in the faith to you and me, right? I mean, we. I remember going with you to Memphis
0: One we're not on speaking terms with, sure.
1: Yeah, fifteen years ago, man, and going and hearing Danny talk about Baptist distinctives, right, right. And um, but he tweeted um, about the Nashville statement that it was clear on the sin of homosexual immorality and transgenderism. And I I thought that was strange because he said because homosexual has a qualifier.
0: Yeah. So uh, you would say the implication there is that homosexual immorality implies there is moral homosexuality. Am I right?
1: Right. Because it condemns transgenderism entirely. But homosexual, it doesn't condemn homosexuality. It condemns homosexual immorality. And so I was I was aggravated that Danny would tweet that. And then I went and looked and it's in the Nashville statement. So the Nashville Statement condemns homosexual immorality, not homosexuality, but it condemns transgenderism, not transgender immorality. Huh? And, um, and so the language it uses, you know, it condemns heterosexual and homosexual immorality. So it puts those two side by side, conflating heterosexuality with homosexuality. Again, the design of God and then what's produced by the fall. You know, homosexuality is not the design of God. It was a result of the fall. If there was no fall, there would be no homosexuality, but there still would be heterosexuality. So it's the design of God. And so by saying heterosexual and homosexual morality, you put the two side by side, and that's the language of the um, Nashville Statement. It also focuses on holy conduct, not on holy hearts. Um, it, con- it does not condemn same-sex attraction. Uh, many of those who signed the Nashville statement do not believe same-sex attraction is sin. Um, it does not say that homosexuality must be turned from like they uh, folks use this language of resisted you must resist it, not turn from it which is repentance. We must turn from sin seek to to stop it to no longer have it the goal is to be sinless right the goal is not to be, Continually sinful. The goal is perfection. The goal is holiness. And where we fall short, we rest in Christ. And Jesus is the reason why we fight. That's something else that Revoice, you know, it's essentially a bunch of men and women who are tired of fighting indwelling sin. And so instead of continuing to fight, they try to take their guilt away through rhetoric. They try to say, well, it's not sin or these aspects I can act on, and it's holy. Um, but if you're a Christian, you don't need the rhetoric of revoice to take your guilt away. Jesus already has. Just look to Him afresh and anew. He has declared you guiltless, and He's making you sinless, and one day you will be in Him. Um, one of the people who signed the Nashville Statement is Robert Gagnon, and he vehemently—he's he's a, he's a bulldog— um he's, he's also a, roman catholic right no 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 he's not he's uh he's staunchly protestant oh what's his tradition i i actually uh, didn't know he's a baptist <laughs> he's <laughs> at, <laughs> he's God, at, stop saying that <laughs> he's at houston baptist university
0: well i knew he was at houston baptist but i, I mean you're you're sure
1: he's part of a baptist church I am. I am. I, well, I'm sure. I'm sure that he's been that he agrees with us on baptism, even though he was teaching a Presbyterian seminary. But you know those those degrees from Princeton Theological, you know, kind of get you in good places. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. that carries. I mean, he's I mean, he's brilliant, but he he says that you know a homosexual impulse, while sinful, cannot take shape as accountable sin in a person's life unless one submits to it. I mean, that that's what he says in his book, which I still commend his book on homosexuality. I mean, he essentially examines all the language in first in the first century, the Greek language that he can get a hold of um, on homosexuality to see if indeed that the New Testament authors were condemning, you know, homosexuality in its entirety. And uh, he argues very persuasively. He interacts with because that, that's been the big push. Right. Matthew Vines. He's at, he's at the popular level. But there were a lot of guys before him, um, you know, in elite universities arguing the same things that Vine kind of popularized, popularized. and uh, Gagnon rips them all apart. But he's, he's mistaken on whether or not concupiscence is, is morally culpable sin. Um, and so he signed the Nashville Statement. So you have people who, who are OK with same-sex attraction um, signing the Nashville Statement. And so we, we need, we need a, a more narrow statement. Um, not only that, but D.A. Carson signed it. And I'm not sure what D.A. Carson view believes about same-sex attraction, whether or not it's sin. But the school that he works for is affiliated with the Evangelical Free Denomination. And they, back in 2013, and they're, they're another precursor to Revoice, um, they released a statement, and if you want to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School today, you have to sign this statement. Now, I don't know if D.A. Carson signed it because he's been teaching there so long, he may not have had to, but new professors have to sign this. I wouldn't recommend any anybody go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for this reason. Um, the statement is called a church statement on human sexuality, Homosexuality and Same-Sex Marriage, a Resource for EFCA Churches. And this is what they say. They say, Temptation, including sexual attractions, is not sin. Sin is yielding to temptation. Jesus himself was tempted yet without sin. Another quote, We must carefully distinguish between same-sex attraction, sinful lust, self-selected identification, and sexual behavior. It is not a sin to be tempted in the area of same-gender sex, which which blows my mind. So actually having a desire for same-gender sex is not sin. Jesus himself was tempted, yet without sin. It, it is insane that someone would compare Jesus being tempted with good things, things that were, God was going to give him in his ministry or God was going to give him after the cross. To compare that to having the desire to have sex with someone who's the same sex blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Um, I, I just,
0: uh, I appreciate your clarity on this. It's been helpful to me. And, uh, you know, I, I realized what you're talking. Why as the dumb guy, I thought Gagnon him be be Catholic, I straight up confused him with Ryan T Anderson. So, <laughs> <Please> that's <forget. laughs> the reason you're the uh, the one doing most of the talking here uh yeah it, it is wild and, and again that's something that our conversation has been clear about listeners may be thinking about the temptation of christ well the temptation of christ was aimed at good things that god the father was going to give god the son once his obedience was accomplished it's not comparable to being tempted to sodomy right and so <laughs> right we, we've got to be clear about the different categories of sins, not to make that the only drum I beat on this, but there, you know, you have to have these distinctions, these moral categories in your mind about uh, a temptation that is built on something that's intrinsically good and uh, an appetite for something
1: that is intrinsically uh, debauched. Amen. So, Amen. And e- even Gethsemane, you can't use Jesus in Gethsemane, you know, saying, "If it be your will, let this cup pass from me; not my will, but yours be done." You know Jesus is wanting to do His Father's will. There, He is not trying to disobey His Father. You know Matthew Lee Anderson tries to use that to say that Jesus desired to disobey His Father, and that is not what's going on. He says, yeah, "If it be your will."
0: Think there is something that should have should have kind of set the world on fire. Um, when MLA said that, I'd forgotten all about that. But that is another one of those deals. It's like, how did you get away with this? This is scandalous.
1: Yeah, um, he he should have been called on the carpet, and and um, but he wasn't. And I mean, it it's frustrating because I mean, if Jesus desired sin, we have no savior. I mean, that, I mean that that's the bottom line. So how do we make sense of that? Well, Jesus didn't desire the evil that came along with god's will he i mean should jesus want to be punished by his father should jesus want to become sin should jesus want to be crucified he didn't want any of those things and so he asked god you know if it be your will would you let this cup pass from me but not my will yours be done
0: yeah the entire framing is what is your will father right yeah uh Again, it's just scandalous because you you go after, I mean, what do we need in a Savior? We need a Savior who not only forgives us, but is everything we should have been. And so part of Jesus's ministry is to love and rejoice in the goodness of God's commands in a way we don't. We need a positive righteousness that comes from always delighting in what the Father has commanded. And if you have any of the MLA's nonsense there, that goes out the door.
1: Amen. And he, he tries to use Jesus in Gethsemane to justify same-sex attraction, which, again, that that is blasphemous. Um, so how do we how do we undo the querying of evangelicalism?
0: Hey, well, uh, and I know I'm going to ask for that. I don't want to delay this, but if listeners are interested in some more on the Nashville Statement and and what we're calling the Crossville Statement, how they're different, credoalliance.com. You'll see a tab that says Statements. You'll see the Crossfield Statement, and then you'll see a document that Jared uh, worked up for us that is comparing the Nashville Statement to the Crossfield Statement, if anybody's interested. CredoAlliance.com, you'll find the links there. All right, press on, Jared. How do we get out of this mess?
1: So I think, first off, we have to start treating this like heinous sin. Instead of being satisfied that Revoice is is not advocating for same-sex marriage, we need to realize that they are advocating for acting on homosexual desires. And so they need to be biblically disciplined. They need to be brought under biblical discipline in their local churches. Everyone who's on their boards need to be ostracized. They no longer be need to be platformed in evangelicalism. There needs to be a hard stand, and all SBC PCA leaders need to draw a line in the sand and encourage these brothers, if they are brothers, to repent. They are not explicitly,
0: orthodox. publicly, in all the arenas that they publish their error. Right?
1: Yes, they are not orthodox. They do not have an orthodox view of sin or repentance. Well, now, real quick, when you say
0: orthodox, I mean, you know, Roman Catholics affirm the Apostles' Creed. When when you're saying orthodox, are you saying they're they're entirely outside of the Christian tradition, or they're outside of the
1: Protestant tradition? I'm saying that they do not have a—I'm saying they've got a Pelagian view of sin. Gotcha, gotcha. They've got a Pelagian view of sin. Augustine or Augustine would call them Pelagian. Roman Catholics and Protestants in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s would call them heretics. And so we need to start treating folks like false teachers who are embracing these things um, and encourage them to repent. Um, the second thing we need to do is understand what sin is. Sin is not based on our ability. You know, it's not based on our ability. It's not based on our memory. It's not based on whether or not we choose, you know, it's not based on any of those things. It's based on what God has commanded. Are we being obedient to God? Are we loving God with all our hearts, souls, and minds? Are we loving our neighbors as ourselves? Anything in us that does not do that is sin. And we need to fight it tooth and nail and reject it. And the reason why we fight is not because we will overcome all sin in this life. We fight because we love Jesus. We fight because we love Christ. That is why we fight. We belong to Him. It's contrary to Him. We hate it. We love Him. And concerning rest, don't look in the mirror. Never look in the mirror. Look to Christ and enjoy the rest that's in Him. Enjoy that your sin is imputed to Him. Don't try to take your sin away by saying it's not sin. No, you, Amen, your, your, your sin is taken away by trusting in Christ. Enjoy that He takes your sin away. Not only that, we need to understand the gospel. Right? We need to understand what Christ has done for us, His death, burial, and resurrection right? it, for us. So He's taken our sin away, expiated it. He's forgiven us of our sin. He has risen from the dead to intercede for us for all eternity. He has taken our sin away. He's given us His righteousness and let us live out of that righteousness, out of the rebirth, out of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and enjoy the Lord through that. Not only that, we need to understand repentance. Repentance. And the way that we need to emphasize and a biblical view of repentance is we need to take responsibility for our concupiscence. We are not the victims of our concupiscence. We are willful participants. We are not the victims of our sinful desire. We're not the victims of our flesh. It is our flesh. People people say, well, I, I didn't choose That's really that. good, man. That, and
0: that is such an antidote to so many... Uh, of the kind of fashionable problems in evangelicalism. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's just really good.
1: Well, they they say like, you know, every desire that comes from my heart is my desire. Like when people say, mm-hmm. well, I didn't choose it. Well, I, I want to ask, well, who did? Like yeah. you're ha- you're having the desire. Well, who, who else is having the desire? And the moment you say uh, it's unchosen or I'm experiencing same-sex attraction, as if it's happening to you. No, 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 it's not happening to you. You're doing it. You're doing it. We are doing it. And the reason why it's so important to say this is because if I'm doing it, it means I can fight it. If it's something that's happening to me, I'm just a victim and there's no hope. And so we've got to get back to where we have a biblical view of fighting sin, all sin, not trying to take it away with rhetoric, but instead dealing with it, repenting of it, turning from it. And I I find great freedom in that because where I fall short, my Savior does not. And I'm not who I need to be, but in Him I am. And He's working on me and He'll finish what He started. And that's why I keep going. Right? I don't need revoice or any other man to give me some pat on the back and, and try to comfort me, I have a Savior who intercedes for me. So that's what we need to emphasize. Not only that, but we need to understand the fight. Um, in, in declaring war against our concupiscence or our sinful desire, um, we need to admit that same-sex attraction is not a special case. It's not a special sin that must be treated differently than other sins. You know, not a, not a single person on earth has been sinless except Jesus Christ and those who struggle with same-sex attraction you know you're in good company i mean if if people would view if if people who have same-sex desire if they would view their sin as like everybody else's sin they would realize that in the local church they have common brothers and sisters in christ who are fighting sin just like them but now revoice has convinced them that no you have to get gather around people who have your particular sin battles which is contrary to the Bible it's contrary to scripture and what what you're going to end up with is well and we've already seen it several people who are who started with revoice are now fully affirming homosexuals and practicing because they put themselves in temptation's way
0: every single they church they need a church of repentant sinners.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they need to not view themselves as special, you know, as their sins are special and everybody's looking at me. Quit focusing on yourself and look to Jesus. Help others walk through repentance instead of focusing on your sin. Quit examining your sin. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. That's where your hope is. Quit parsing your sin. You know, every Christian battles sin every day. I do. You do. And so get with other strugglers and fight sin you know so that's what we need to emphasize we need to get back to that and then
0: and you're thinking about ordinary means of grace right repentance yes. uh coming to the lord's supper hearing the word of god preached singing with the saints things like that
1: yeah and and praying and journaling and putting uh pop culture that is god glorifying in front of you catechizing yourself with hymns and songs of you know, Christian theology and the Psalms and, I mean, essentially doing whatever it takes, right, to to fight that indwelling sin. And I find great comfort, man, in in being catechized by the Word, like being taught how to think rightly by hearing Scripture and singing Scripture. Yeah. And and then find some opposite-sex friends, find some opposite sex friends
0: hey wait a minute amy bird how do we how do we do that
1: appropriately <laughs> well they need to be single <laughs> don't find a married woman and before i mean you can have friends obviously who are married but i would focus more on people who are not married because this needs to be people that you can ha- sit down and have deep conversations with um someone who who knows you might end up getting married see it, it's crazy like in the bible um, attraction is not a prerequisite for marriage, but in our that's well
0: said, man. That's well said, or at in, least not physical attraction, right?
1: Right, right. In, in our culture, it's like, oh, it's the primary thing. You've got to be attracted to each other, and and all this stuff. That's why people live together. That's why they're having sex before they, they got to figure out if they're compatible. And all this baloney. When the covenant, the covenant is why you should stay married and get married, and um, it's very freeing because it, it doesn't matter because I, I just have a hard time believing. I mean, maybe my wife is just attracted to me all the time, you know, but uh, I just, you know, it's been 17 years and I've lost all my hair and, you know, um, I'm skeptical too, Jared. I'm very skeptical. <laughs> oh my goodness, Jeff. <laughs> You've, you're one to talk. Mr. For sure. I'm an
0: expert. Anyway, I, that, that was a, that was low hanging fruit. I'm out.
1: All right. So, oh, babe. but the, they need to enjoy Christian community. Um, focus on that others, instead of focusing on yourself, focus on serving other people, love God and your neighbor. That's what you need to focus on. You need to forget about yourself. <laughs> you know, Quit, quit focusing on yourself, quit sitting and ruminating over your homosexuality and over, you know, quit talking about it. Quit thinking about it. Go put your hands to something else. Go do something good for somebody else. <laughs> Go be obedient to what God has revealed in Scripture. I mean, good grief. If you're if you were out working on the farm for 15 hours a day, every day, you ain't got time to be gay. You know? Oh, my gosh. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you ain't got time to be sitting around thinking. I mean, when you're worried this about is, uh, your
0: next you, meal. You're, you're making a version of the idle hands of the devil's uh, playground or whatever, right? But Like aiming yourself at rightly ordered vocational pursuits Mm -hmm. is a sort of common grace, uh, or uh, common grace, uh, sort of a readily available stream of grace from the Lord to help you uh, not be consumed by wicked desires. Is that that a fair summary? Yeah.
1: Yes. And, And just hearing how Revoice, how they talk, how Wesley Hill talks. Um, they're constantly talking about how they feel. Sure. And it's morbid an introspection in a sense, right? It is. It, yes, it's it's off. It, quit talking and thinking about how you feel. Quit worrying about your feelings. Go serve somebody else.
0: Yeah. Well, you, the, you know, earlier you were talking about marriage and, and can that happen without physical attraction or not primarily on physical attraction? Physical attraction can be cultivated, but on this exact point, I, you know, some of our listeners may want to beat me up for quoting Tim Keller positively, but his book on marriage, at one point he says, the essence of a Christian marriage is saying, I see what God is making you into, and I want to be a part of that. And, and that's really consistent with this servant-hearted, others-oriented uh, vision you're laying out here before us, uh, that that you really can build a vocational life as a spouse on if you're, you know, if you're a Christian and if your covenant partner is a Christian as well.
1: Amen. Amen. Yeah. Keller, I could have mentioned him earlier, man on, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. He, he says that homosexuality will not send you to hell. That's, you know, he's real. That's just empty rhetoric. Um, And heterosexuality won't send you to heaven. Uh, You know, I mean it, it would have kept Adam in the garden. I mean you know <laughs> if he had focused on pursuing his wife and cut the serpent's head off. Um, yep. but um but anyway, like that that's the kind of rhetoric that got us here. But, sure. but you're you're right. He said a lot he said a lot of good things in his book on marriage is great. Um he, his emphasis on the covenant. The covenant is the reason why, you know, you come home at night and love your wife. Like the the duty um, is a result of the covenant so when she's lovely and when she's not she's still your bride and you have a covenant duty to her right modeled on Christ loving his bride when she's uh, clearly not uh, often
0: presenting yourself in lovely fashion so guys we've we've got some listeners who have hung with us for uh, an hour and 20 minutes here I really appreciate y'all i um, I'm assuming there's still some questions in fact I saw some uh, that are really good in the replies to the twitter thread someone asked about sam Alberry and ed shaw i was super interested in ed shaw's plausibility problem when it was published in fact that's not the english title i went and got a copy shipped to me from britain because i was so interested Uh, i think that's a great question i'd love to get to that what i'm going to do is ask jared if he will take a look at any replies to this twitter thread and say I'll write up an answer for that. I'll publish that on Servants and Heralds. Um, the, the Just pastorally, the thing I would throw in the hopper is that this isn't going to change. Uh, the querying of evangelicalism isn't going to change, I don't think, coming from top-down institutions. I think it's going to have to rise from the grassroots. Uh, I recently spoke at a local university. They were having a hard time finding a pastor who was willing to talk about homosexuality to a group of Christian students. And so they finally got to the bottom of the barrel and asked me, and the point I tried to stress with them is I think this is a group of Christian students. They know the biblical arguments. The thing they're going to have to work to uh, cultivate, maintain is a high view of God's blessing on the marriage covenant, specifically in the gift of children. We're going to have to recover a high view of what God has done, in marriage and the way that he blesses that unique relationship with fecundity. So I think this is a vision of the good life kind of problem that we're going to have to work really hard to renormalize and recast as a high view. Um, And if you're like me, um, with people who aren't clear headed on, uh, you know, the issue of concupiscence and same sex attraction, the questions that were profitable to me as I talked through these things with Jared were, um, well, so what if we substitute a different sin in for same sex attraction? Again, I've went to spouse abuse. I've went to racism. I've went to pornography. Can those, you know, are those sins the kind of things that can be sublimated to good ends? Why or why not? Those are good questions that are gentle, gentle prods to people who may not be thinking clearly. Um, What other sins do you think can be desired as wickedness but that desire is not wicked in and of itself even though it's aimed at something wicked those are kind of questions that you can kind of probe on your friends with as you talk to them and and try to kind of socratically um put a rock in their shoe and so those are those are some things i would suggest uh guys jared and i will release this if we're able as a podcast, if I if I can do it the way I want to, it'll be the first episode of the Servants and Heralds podcast. If I can't do that, I'll release it through our Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. Um, either way, I'll put a link on the Servants and Heralds social media if you want to listen to it. And don't forget Credo Alliance. Um, drop by there and check that out. We're trying to uh, help connect and resource uh, specifically Credo Baptists with... Um, uh, good, helpful, cultural engagement resources, and also clarity on, uh, on the gospel. Jared, anything you want to say before we hit 830?
1: No, brother. Thank you for having me. Uh, I enjoyed this. If anybody has any questions, feel free to, um, tweet at me. Um, Jared H. Moore is my Twitter and, uh, I'd love to, love to talk with you, but, uh, but I, I hope that um, if any of you battle any of these desires, that you're encouraged um, because other sinners are battling desires and they're still hoping and resting and enjoying Christ. And you can as well. Yeah. listen. Well, and guys,
0: thank you all for being with us. Thanks, uh, particularly to those of you who were with us the whole way through. And we'll get the recording of this out uh, as soon as we can, assuming we're able. Thanks again. And everybody have a good night. See you. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to drop by servantsandheralds.com. Do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast feed as well, if you don't mind. Until we talk again, y'all get up to good stuff for the glory of King Jesus.